0: I was here last uh, May 15th and uh, we talked about joy and I, and I want to thank uh, Pastor Danny for having me back. I'm delighted to be here again since it's rare that I'm ever invited back. <laughs> I've, I visit a lot, a lot of churches and, and this comes from my heart. You, you really make me feel at home. Uh, this is a great place. Uh, You know, the Gallup poll just came out yesterday, I believe it was, with the latest statistics on faith in God in adults in the United States. It's at the lowest point ever. Now, it sounds high when I give you the number, uh, but I think that it's not as accurate as that. The number, and remember, this is the lowest they've ever gotten, 81%. 81%. If we could just get the other uh, 19% here to Stuart, I think we'd we'd be in good shape. Now, quick review from when I was here last. The sermon was entitled, Get Out of the Tree. We talked about Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector and a sinner. And he gets up in a sycamore tree because he wants to see Jesus. And Jesus commands him to come down and the life of Zacchaeus is changed forever as his heart is filled with joy. And we talked about the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a quality that becomes part of us. We're meant to live lives of joy as believers. Happiness, on the other hand, is just an emotion. It comes and it goes, it's temporary, it's controlled by circumstances, and I briefly touched upon joy even in the midst of suffering and death. Now, sometimes, Even believers struggle with wrapping our minds around such an idea that God promises joy in the face of suffering. In fact, the secular world, they consider the problem of evil and suffering its most potent weapon against the church. So today's message, is get out of the tree part two joy in the face of evil suffering and death again three parts good news bad news good news a caution here despite evil suffering and death being the most shared experiences in all of history, talking about them can be uncomfortable. It can be unsettling. After all, death for most of us is just an abstraction until it comes for a loved one, until we have to face our own our own mortality. Augustine said we want to meet God, but not by way of the road he's laid out. And I'm going to be reading parts of an article that appeared in the New Yorker magazine, June 6, 2011. It's wherein a father writes about the loss of his year old daughter to brain cancer. Now, back then, I first read this article while my own daughter was battling brain cancer at the age of 30, and I've kept that article. I've I've, I've kept that article, and from time to time, I read it again, and the author a heads up, He pulls no punches. He gives a vivid description of pain and suffering and a sense of hopelessness uh, that he and his wife experienced as they watched their daughter struggle to live. The first time, I couldn't finish the article. I just couldn't get through it. It hurt. Well, my goal is not to just Remind you of hurt. Three things. First, remind us that joy is available even in the face of death. Two, remind us nothing can separate us, nothing, from the love of God. And three, to motivate all of us. Allow us to plant deep, spiritual roots now, so that we can hold firm to our God, even in difficult times. If you'll open your Bibles, Romans 8, 35 to 39, here is some incredible news. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, let me say that again. This is Paul writing to us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In this we rejoice, though now for a little while we may be grieved by various trials and suffering. May we stand strong in the midst of such trials Never losing our joy in you. Let's talk about Paul. By the time he writes this, he has suffered more than most of us will in five lifetimes. Here's a list of some of the things he had to deal with. Five times he was flogged, five times. That's 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was pelted with stones. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. He was in danger from bandits, Jews, Gentiles. He had faced all types of physical, emotional, and spiritual hardships. For Paul... Suffering was not an academic exercise. He knew suffering. And the last couple of verses, they're some of the most powerful endings to a chapter to be found anywhere in Scripture. Listen to what he says. Again, let let this live in your heart. For I am sure, that neither death nor life nor anything else, anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Now, at this point, if I had any sense, pastor, I'd just sit down. (laughs) It doesn't get better than that. It just doesn't. Now, how can Paul write that in light of his own history. Is he some kind of special tough guy with a high high pain tolerance? Is he some kind of macho man? Scripture doesn't suggest that anywhere. Paul has the confidence, the assurance, that only comes with a close walk with God. For I am sure he doesn't doubt He's not worried. He knows it. Knows what? Nothing. Nothing can separate him from God. Hear it again. Not death, not life struggles, nothing we face now, nothing to come in the future, nothing in all creation, nothing stole Paul's joy. Nothing. Here's some bad news. The article I'm going to read from is entitled The Aquarium. Here's the background it's a young, successful couple. They have two kids a daughter, three, and Isabel, who is nine months old. Isabel is described as a cheerful, joy-filled child who loved people. And at a regular checkup, it's discovered that for some reason, her brain is swelling. And so begins a heart-wrenching medical journey for Isabel and her parents. There's a CT scan. Isabel's brain is filling with fluid. They suspect there's some kind of growth. An MRI is done. They discover a golf ball-sized tumor, a teratoid. The author and his wife will refer to it as, quote, the thing, unquote. My daughter, being somewhat like her father, referred to hers uh, with much stronger language. So the author does research on the internet, kind of guy that wants to know everything about what's happening to his daughter. He discovers it's highly malignant. The survival rate is only 10%. I did the exact same thing. I went to the internet. Isn't that what we all do? I discovered it was a highly aggressive cancer. The survival rate was somewhat better. It was 20%. Before they could do the scheduled surgery, Isabel's tumor hemorrhaged. And without emergency surgery, she could bleed to death. Listen to what the author writes. I will be quoting him. There's a psychological mechanism, I've come to believe, that prevents most of us from imagining the moment of our own death. For if it were possible to imagine fully that instant of passing from consciousness to non existence with all the attendant fear and humiliation of absolute helplessness, it would be very hard to live. It would be unbearably obvious that death is inscribed in everything that constitutes life, that any moment of your existence may be only a breath away from being your last. We would be continuously devastated by the magnitude of that inescapable fact. Still, as we mature into our mortality, we begin to gingerly dip our horror, tingling toes into the void, hoping that our mind will somehow ease itself into dying, that God or some other soothing opioid would remain available as we venture into the darkness of non-being. But how can you ease yourself into the death of your child? Now, let me point out the obvious. In the secular world, I believe he's absolutely right. Without God, what he has just written makes perfect sense to me. It'd be very hard to live. We'd be devastated by the fact of death. We'd be hoping to find something that would somehow find it acceptable. Well, the emergency surgery was successful and a good portion of the tumor was removed. The next MRI showed, sadly, parts of the tumor remained, and further surgery would be necessary. In three weeks, within three weeks time, Isabel had two brain resections, six surgeries to allow fluid to drain, a tube placed in her chest for chemotherapy, and they would find another tumor, this one inoperable. She was 10 months old when she had her first chemotherapy treatment. The author writes that on good days, Isabel would smile heroically, but there were more bad days than good ones. He writes how he fought the thought of holding Isabel's little hand as she was dying. And he would do his best to erase that vision from his mind. He began to think of himself as someone in an aquarium. He could see out, people could see in, but he and his wife were living in an entirely different environment. One filled with hospitals, doctors, and suffering. Hence the title, The Aquarium. He writes further, what he and his wife were experiencing had no application whatsoever in the outside world. People's attempts to comfort them failed. Again, another direct quote. And we stayed away from anyone who we feared might offer us the solace of that supreme platitude, God. The hospital chaplain was prohibited from coming anywhere near us. Well, meanwhile, Isabel's condition got worse. She began to have full-blown seizures. And the day came when the hospital called and told the parents that Isabel's condition was dire. She was bloated, her eyelids were swollen, she was having trouble breathing, they needed to get to the hospital. And that the author and his wife would need to tell the doctors when it was time to cease efforts to save Isabel's life. So they rushed to the hospital and imagined this scene. Mom's in the room, weeping uncontrollably. The doctors are taking turns compressing Isabel's chest. And the author could only wail my baby, my baby. And outside the room, there are nurses, people unknown to the author, who were in the hallway rooting for Isabel, some of them in tears. And all the author could do was howl, my baby, my baby. Finally, it all stops and Isabel is gone. 108 days of suffering. And here's the author's conclusion. One of the most despicable religious fallacies is that suffering is ennobling that it is a step on the path to some kind of enlightenment or salvation. Isabel's suffering and death did nothing for her or us or the world. We learned no lessons worth learning. We acquired no experience that could benefit anyone. And Isabel most certainly did not earn ascension to a better place as there was no place better for her than at home with her family. Her indelible absence is now an organ in our bodies whose sole function is a continuous secretion of sorrow. Here's my question, have you planted the roots of your faith deep enough to be able to deal with such a tragedy? I'm not asking if you wouldn't mourn, shed tears, feel the anguish that these parents felt. Would you continue to trust God? Would you draw closer to him? Would you let it steal your joy? Now, the author uses some strong and frankly rather harsh words. His response to his daughter's death is, please, no worthless platitudes in the face of death. He damns the world he believes in for having no meaning. Let that sink in. You don't have to be a philosophical uh, expert to get this part. He damns the world he believes in for having no meaning. My question to the author would be, with no meaning, what is there to damn? The world just is. It's senseless to cry out to a meaningless world. The world doesn't care. On the other hand, our faith, Christianity, is the only religion that refuses to stick its head in the sand and respond to suffering with simple platitudes or denial. Hinduism. Evil is an illusion. Buddhism, well, once you become enlightened, you escape into the nothingness. Islam, well, you're suffering because you deserve it. You're not good enough. Atheism, there's no foundation, foundational truth. So, how can you say anything is good or evil in the long run? As the author pointed out, it's all meaningless. Scripture, our Bible faces evil and suffering head-on. From Genesis to Revelation, it's a book that talks about suffering. Forty years in the desert, the Jews in and out of captivity, Joseph sold into slavery, the story of Job, the travails of Paul, the execution of the disciples, and Jesus on the cross. Our suffering servant. Scripture, our Bible, explains the entrance of evil and suffering and death into the world. And it tells us we, in fact, will experience suffering and death. God gives us a heads up. And maybe more importantly... Our God suffered Himself and died for us. Remember the story of Lazarus, John 11? He's the the man that Jesus loved. And He finds out that Lazarus is ill. Well, so He's going to get there. But He doesn't get there in time, and Lazarus has died. Verse 33. Jesus was deeply moved by what he finds out. Now, the translation in the ESV doesn't really do justice to that. Here's what it really means. He was deeply moved. He was angry. Anger. In fact, possibly snorting like a horse. And then in 35, he wept. Jesus doesn't pretend about the impact of death. He's upset. He weeps, just like the author of the article I read. But Jesus knew something our author obviously did not. He knew that suffering and death, one, they weren't meant to be. And two, that Jesus had come with the solution. Himself, and that evil, suffering, and death's days were numbered. Now, we all have to make a choice. We got to choose how we respond. The secular response, it's all meaningless. It's like in Job, curse God and die. But God's answer in the midst of suffering, is to draw closer, to trust him, to hope in the glory to come. I will not leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate you from my love. I will send you the gift of joy, even where you might least expect to find it. Jesus himself tells us, beloved, I too have suffered and cried out to my Father, hold on to me, and I will give you my peace. Now, in the sermon in May, I I told everybody that joy does not mean we will not experience sorrow, that we will not mourn, or that our bodies will not suffer. Joy is, though, bigger than evil suffering or death. And if we just plant our roots deep enough, that's how we will respond. Did you ever wonder how Paul did what he did? How did James write, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? How did the early martyrs go to their deaths singing hymns? Now, that's the one that always gets me. Rome is my favorite city. I, I love Rome, it's fascinating. If you haven't been able to visit, go. The Colosseum is incredible. And I can't help but think of the martyrs as I look down into the arena. And then, of course, my next thought, I'm singing, I'm singing. It's tough. So first, first, get out of the tree. Enjoy God's gift of faith. Plant deep spiritual roots now. Don't wait till the 11th hour. A lot of people have died at 1030. Here's a quote from Rod Dreher, Christian author. You can tell the difference between admirers and disciples when it comes to suffering. Admirers fall away but the dis- disciples stagger onward to rejoice in Christ. Which one will you be? Second, here's a, another list I've taken from Tim Keller. He wrote a book on dealing with suffering and how to walk through it. One, Walk with God. It's not about being tough, denying hard times. Scripture often talks about suffering in terms of something that has to be walked through. You will not be doing it alone. He will never leave you. Get used to hearing this, plant deep roots now. Weeping, weeping is okay. Jesus wept for Lazarus. He cried out to his father from the cross. It is okay to pour out your hearts to God in difficult times. Read the laments in the Psalms. There's no sadder psalm than Psalm 88. Psalm 39 ends with no sign of hope. Psalm 44 says, God, why do you hide your face? Again, our book recognizing suffering is a difficult thing. Consider Job. Now, his long speeches... Often miss the mark. If you, if you read Job, uh, uh, oftentimes I try to identify with a lot of characters in the Bible. And as I read Job's speeches, I, yeah, I'd be that dumb. But they were honest questions as he wonders about what's going on. But even in his inappropriate wanderings, he doesn't. Stop loving God, even though he doesn't get the relief he wants. Plant deep roots now. Third, trust God. Joseph was thrown into captivity. He prayed for deliverance. Did he get deliverance? Not right away. In fact, every time he prayed, it seemed like things turned out worse. But God delivered him in ways that Joseph could never have imagined. And Joseph ends up being second in command to the Pharaoh. Jesus on the cross. Imagine you're a follower and there you are. You're there. You're watching watching the crucifixion. What would your thought be? What madness is this? How can he be my king? It points out God's plan is better than your plan. Plant deep roots now. Pray. Prayer draws you closer to God. Your walk will be easier. Now, it's not meant to primarily be a contract negotiation with God. God didn't make a prayer to be you offering up something in return for something. I'll love you if. Pray because you love God for who he is. Plant deep roots now. Five, think deeply about God. This comes from Philippians. Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, think about these things. Fill your mind with the things of God. Now, I know that sounds like theology. I know it does. And for some of us, we don't like that idea. But learn to rejoice in a fuller understanding of God's plan for your redemption and his amazing grace that has fallen upon you. Read his book. It was written for you. Plant deep roots now. Six, thank God. Don't be anxious. Make your request to God with thanksgiving. Again, not in anticipation of what you want. Trust him. He knows more than you. Plant deep roots now. Seven, reorder your life toward love. Engage the affections of your heart. Love the right things. Love God first. Make your goal to please God, not people. Let me step aside from my message for a moment. I worried about parts of this message because I recognize some of it's not easy. I don't like parts of it myself. But this is what came to me. And, And my thought was, there there may be one person that absolutely needs to hear this. Absolutely needs to hear this, to be prepared for the struggle. And I, I know you'll be shocked by this, but your pastor's job is not always to please you. His job's to please God. That's your job. You want an easy way to understand that? Look at the cross. There's no greater example of love in all of the history of the world. Look what he has done for you, a sinner. Plant deep roots now. Hope, just the most practical solution that Keller talks about. Revelation, John cuts to the chase. Think about what's going on as he's writing. People are suffering. Homes are being taken. People are being thrown in the arena to be torn apart. They're impaled on stakes. They're covered with pitch and set ablaze. What does John respond with in light of all this evil, suffering, and death? It's not, "Eh, you can stay at my house. It's not, hey, I know a secret passage out of the Colosseum. It's not, don't worry, I got a fire extinguisher. He gives them the ultimate hope, a new heaven, a new earth, all things made right for all eternity. What you believe about the future will control how you live now. It will control what your response to this message is. If you're unsure, you better get out of the tree because you're not gonna get out of here alive. Plant deep roots now. Three things in conclusion. If you're of a philosophical bent, and I tend to be that way, uh, there's an American philosopher, Alvin Plantinga, who has answered the Christian's critics who assert that if God is all-powerful and all-good, how can evil exist? In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? Up until the 80s, most philosophers believed this was a very effective attack on the God of the Bible. It's now acknowledged by most philosophers that this previous logical attack on God is bankrupt. If you're really a student of philosophy, the title of Plantinga's book is The Nature of Necessity. Caution, it's not an easy read. A much easier book to read uh, by Plantinga is God, Freedom, and Evil. Second, Those of uh, you who have recently lost loved ones or are in the midst of suffering, I recognize a clever presentation, attempts at encouragement often are not sufficient. But I promise you, as Paul has promised you, as Scripture promises you, God will never leave you. He is sufficient. Draw closer. Trust him. This world cannot steal your joy. And finally, it's a question you may have been thinking about while I've presented this sermon. I know I've thought about it. Why did this author's precious daughter die And my Jennifer did not. I don't know. I don't know. Some things are beyond our understanding. Hear this from the word of God, from Job 38. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. We nor Job can answer that. But what we do know is God is sufficient. He is sufficient for us to rejoice in his joy. Amen.